your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Sylvester J. Schieber. Syl is a former chairman of the Social Security Advisory Board, an independent pension consultant, and the author of The Predictable Surprise, The Unraveling of the U.S. Retirement System, which I highly recommend. Syl, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you. Glad to be here, Don. Now, the reason I wanted to have you on is to discuss a recent paper you and American Enterprise Institute resident scholar Andrew Biggs recently wrote for National Affairs called Is There a Retirement Crisis? And... Mm -hmm. As you point out in the paper, the idea that Americans are woefully unprepared for retirement has become a huge talking point, particularly among those who are seeking to expand Social Security. So first of all, what is this alleged retirement crisis and who are the people pushing this claim? Well, the, the story is that uh, the retirement system has changed dramatically over the last 30 years or so. We went from a defined benefit pension system where the employer made, in most cases, all of the contributions, uh, in some cases, the overwhelming majority of the contributions, uh, and benefits were paid out as annuities. We went from that kind of system to a more individual savings-based system, the 401k type uh, retirement plan, where we depend on workers to put money uh, into their accounts on a regular basis, oftentimes matched by the employer, um, that we've gone from this old traditional system to the new system uh, and that workers have not adapted properly. And so workers aren't saving in this new environment. And so they're on a trajectory that means they will end up at retirement age uh, with woefully inadequate benefits. The, the groups that are pushing this, uh, there's there's various groups, folks at the AFL-CIO and, and some of their related uh, research units um, seem to uh, hold this opinion. Uh, there's a uh, group, uh, the National Institute of Retirement Security, very important sounding name, um, that have done uh, a couple of reports over the last several months uh, where they, they try to uh, document this using uh, using certain data. Uh, there's groups like the Retirement uh, Research Center uh, at Boston College, headed up by Alicia Manel, uh, who uh, who have made the case. So there's there's a variety of groups that are are making the case, and when they when they reach their conclusion, they say, well, we you know we need to adopt new policies or, or change our existing policies uh, to make up for this uh, this inadequacy that's evolving. And the primary suggestion has been in most of these uh, reviews uh, that uh, we should expand Social Security. Uh, and they, it's, it's kind of part and parcel of uh, uh, the National Institute of Retirement Security's uh, 
analysis. Uh, the New America Foundation has a report out uh, calling specifically for that. Uh, so Teresa Gilarducci, a professor uh, at the New School in New York City, um, advocates that. She's often affiliated with the uh, with the AFL-CIO. So, uh, you know, it's, it's that's the basis for the for the uh, suggestion we've got this problem, and that's usually uh, the uh, recommendation for, for dealing with it. Yeah, and it's not just academic. I mean, I first really became aware of this line of argument when Elizabeth Warren on the floor of the Senate uh, argued this very point that we need to expand Social Security because of this retirement crisis. Correct. Well, she, she is... She is certainly relying on uh, on uh, the, these data that are being generated by uh, by various groups as, as the basis for her, uh, her suggestion. I mean, she can point to these things, and you know they do come from groups that have at least important sounding names. Uh, the analysis behind the the, uh, uh, the conclusions and the recommendations. Uh, is not always as concrete as it may seem when you uh, when you get in and kind of peel back uh, what they're doing. Yeah, so let's get into that. In in your paper, you and Andrew Biggs argue that every element of this argument is wrong or at least questionable. And specifically, and I'm quoting from the paper, you say that these claims overstate what workers need to provide themselves with a secure retirement income, underestimate what they have been accumulating for that purpose, and ignore much of the income paid to retirees out of their pensions and retirement savings plans. So we can kind of go down the list. So let's start with how do these reports or arguments or studies overstate what workers need in order to have a secure retirement income? Well, there's in, for most people, there's, there's two components to, uh, to their retirement benefits. The first is Social Security. Um, that's kind of the foundation that, that uh, many people rely on, or most people rely on. Um, and and then there's their own saving or their own pension benefits that they earn during their working career. A fellow that uh, I've done some work with, his name was Gobble Pong, um, have looked at how much income people are getting from Social Security relative to the pre-retirement earnings. And we have documented that Social Security benefits are larger relative to workers' uh, career earnings than Social Security actually says they are. Uh, and it's a it's a kind of a technical aspect of how you determine how large benefits are relative to wages. They are using wage indexes, and and so they're actually attributing to workers much higher wages during their working career than they actually earn, even in real inflation-adjusted terms. Well, if, you, if you're saying that people have a higher income than they actually do, and you know, suppose somebody is, is eligible for a Social Security benefit of, of $20,000 a year, and their, their pre-retirement uh, income uh, was uh, was fifty thousand dollars a year? Well, that would mean that Social Security was replacing forty percent of their pre-retirement income. Well, if instead of of uh, 
actually calculate your pre-retirement earnings as $50,000, you calculated it as 60, well then Social Security would be replacing only one-third um, instead of 40%. Well, most, most uh, retirement planners think that workers need somewhere around 70 to 80%, maybe 85% uh, of earnings in retirement to maintain their pre-retirement standard of living. They need less than when they're working because they don't have to pay payroll taxes, they don't have uh, commuter expenses, uh, they don't have other expenses related to working. So they can they can live on somewhat less or maintain their standard of living with somewhat less than while they're working. Well, Social Security benefits are, are, are uh, being underestimated in terms of the replacement rate. So this suggests that workers have to save more than they actually need to hit what most uh, consider conventional uh, conventional savings targets. Um, yeah, and so I guess one part of uh, something implicit in what you said is that when we're talking about secure retirement, what we're generally thinking of is what's required what does a person have to have in order to maintain the same basic standard of living as he has when he enters retirement as he had before? That's what most people consider to be an adequate retirement income. Uh, you know, people become accustomed to their standard of living and the idea that because you're not working anymore, you, you need to, uh, you need to really cut back and scrimp is not something that's very appealing to most people. On the other hand, you know, the idea that you're going to scrimp and save all during your working career so you can lead some kind of a palatial uh, lifestyle afterwards doesn't seem to make very much sense either. So the general, the general kind of rule of thumb is that people ought to be saving. They ought to put together a retirement portfolio that will allow them to, to pretty roughly maintain their, their standard of living that they achieved before retiring. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something a little dubious about this whole endeavor of trying, or if not dubious, at least really, really hard that isn't acknowledged, which is people have really different goals and different ways of pursuing those goals. And so, and I mean, the one thing, for instance, that's not taken into account is, well, how many of these people are paying off their houses and then have to spend radically less in retirement than they do to maintain their standard of living? So it's... That is that is certainly part of our argument. Uh, in, in fact, it's not only paying off your house. Uh, the vast majority of people have children during their working career. Uh, and by the time they get into their 50s or so, the children have moved out of the house. Well, you know, if you've got two kids, three kids, uh, they, uh, they're, not, they, they're, they're not inexpensive. And so once they move out, most the the empirical evidence suggests that the people that have children, when the children move out, they actually reduce their consumption level. So they might spend more while they have children in the household, but once the children move out, they, then they save. But they live at a, a they have a lower level of living, um, and are satisfied with that lower level of living than people that never have children. So it's it's paying off the house, it's paying off all of the other kinds of debts. Uh, and and then not uh, not having to uh, continue to support children, that that really reduce uh, the, uh, reduce the amount that you need 
in order to maintain that pre-retirement standard. So let's move on then to the other side. And I found this part of your paper the, the most fascinating. How do the people promoting the idea of the retirement crisis underestimate how much retired Americans have actually at their disposal? Well, another colleague of mine, Billie Jean King, and I uh, developed a paper that we published uh, earlier this year in the Journal of Retirement. It was published, I think, in January. Um, the, the primary survey that is used to understand the income level of people across the whole population is a survey called the Current Population Survey. It's done by the Census Bureau. It's actually done every month. It's, it's the basis for the employment numbers, the unemployment rate that you hear announced once a month. In March each year, they go to this sample of individuals they're interviewing on a monthly basis. And they ask them about their income in the prior year. And they go through their income on a source-by-source -source basis. So how much did you get from work? How much did you get from Social Security? How much did you get from pensions? How much did you get from welfare? Those kinds of things. So um, so uh, the, the sample is quite large, about 60,000 households. Um, the, uh, this survey is then used to track the population over time. This, the, the, the numbers that come out of this on pensions, on pension-related, you know, retirement savings and pension uh, income, have always seemed to be somewhat low to me relative to aggregate numbers that are published by other branches of government. So what Billy Jean and I did was we got a file from the IRS. It was a sample of tax filers for 2008. And we compared the reported pension and IRA income on the tax files for 2008 for people who also reported Social Security. We compared that to the reported pension and IRA income on this current population survey, also for people who reported they were receiving Social Security benefits. And what we found was that the, the amount of income, pension and, and IRA income reported on the CPS that year, the current population, on the tax files that year, were, were about 60% larger than, uh, than the uh, uh, income being reported on the current population survey. So, you know, the tax, or the policy anal analysts and uh, the policy makers are, are uh, saying, well, you know, we need to uh, we need to uh, provide more income to uh, uh, to retirees uh, because uh, because look at how eager their benefits are relative to Social Security. Well, the fact of the matter is, we're not counting most of their income, uh, and and these benefits are almost the equivalent of Social Security. Now, they don't distribute in the same way that Social Security does. Uh, Social Security tends to pay somewhat relatively higher benefits at low income levels, and very low income people have hardly any benefits uh, from, from pensions or IRAs. So it, it's, it's not that, you know, there aren't some people that are going to be in need, uh, but we've, uh, we've been dramatically exaggerating the story uh, relative to reality. 
um, there's a real strain of venom directed particularly at 401ks in many of these arguments. Uh, why are they so hostile to them? And what is the evidence that people using 401ks have, or that 401ks haven't actually been successful at helping Americans prepare for retirement? Well, there are certain groups that like to have group control of what we do and how we behave. Uh, the unions, uh, for example, clearly prefer uh, a pension plan that they negotiate uh, with the employer. And in case of multi-employer plans, there's union members uh, who are trustees of these plans and so forth. Um, when when people start to uh, to have uh, individual control of their own savings and their own uh, retirement accumulations and so forth, the folks that that uh, favor group organization um, find that to uh, be a, an unwelcome development, and and so they start to uh, they start to ferret out evidence uh, that. Uh, that proves that these things don't work, but oftentimes their you know their evidence is uh, is misleading. Uh, for example, most of these people would prefer to go back to the old traditional defined benefit system. We started the 401k system in the early 1980s. It was in 1982 that the first plan was created, and and from that juncture on, we've relied much more heavily on individual workers to contribute to their plans than on the companies or the employers who were sponsoring these group plans. Well, from 1985 onward, if you look at, at the data, through the end of, uh, end of the 20th century, uh, the per capita contribution into these defined contribution plans that were dependent upon workers actually contributing. The, the contributions averaged 60% more year in and year out in private and high contribution plans than employer contributions per active worker in their defined benefit plans. So, you know, if you've got a philosophy that we have to do this on a group basis, you, you will find some workers who don't participate. But when you look at the actual flow of, of savings into retirement purposes, into retirement accounts, it's been dramatically larger in defined contribution plans, 401k plans, than in these traditional plans. That's fascinating. I'd never heard that before. The the lust after pensions, it seems really impractical, just given, A, very few workers today are working at any one place long enough to really take advantage of them, and B, it always seems to suffer from the same era as not diversifying your investments, right? I mean, we we sort of made fun of everybody who worked at Enron and had all of their their uh, retirement stocked up in Enron stock. But I mean, it seems that a, a pension with a company suffers from the same thing. You're totally dependent on whether or not they they fulfill that pension. Well, if you uh, if you go find yourself uh, some uh, retired uh, Delta airline pilots that retired. Uh, about 15 years ago and thought they'd have uh, 25 or so years of well-funded retirement uh, because they had this cushy defined benefit plan. You're going to find, uh, you're gonna find uh, a pretty
pretty sizable group of people who are getting a much smaller benefit today than when they originally retired because uh, because the company that sponsored their plan went bankrupt. Uh, and the PBGC, the insurance company uh, uh, operation run by the federal government, doesn't pay, it doesn't guarantee uh, unlimited benefits. And so they, these, these retirees had to take a substantial reduction in benefits. You go for the uh, retirees from uh, Bethlehem Steel, uh, who, uh, who retired at uh, age uh, 55 or maybe even earlier because they were covered in a 30-year 30, uh, 30 of employment and uh, retirement uh, and out plan. Uh, they, uh, their benefits were cut back because the PBGC does not, uh, does not guarantee early retirement benefits. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of workers around who thought they had this guaranteed benefit for life, that it turned out it's not nearly as guaranteed as they thought it was. You have um, what's almost an anecdote uh, about the social security statements we all get, or at least we all used to get them mailed to us, where it said, in effect, you know, here's what you paid and here's, you know, what your future benefits might look like. And you note that this was actually presented in a sort of deceptive or unclear way but that rather than clarify it, social, when this was pointed out to the Social Security Administration, they actually made their statements deliberately less clear. And I was wondering if you could tell people about that. Well, again, for some, for some reason, uh, they, uh, they seem to want to give people the impression that Social Security is not going to be as robust a benefit as current law suggests that it's going to be. Now, the system is underfunded. It's underfinanced right now, and we have to make some adjustments to it at some juncture when our dear politicians can never uh, figure out how to play nice in the pool together uh, for a day or two. Uh, we, we've got to uh, make some changes there. But uh, they, they, under current law, they, they keep implying that the benefit is much generous than it actually is. And if their motivation is that they need to, to scare people because the system's underfinanced, then they ought to tell people, this system is underfinanced, and you shouldn't count on the benefits that are in current law. But they not be misrepresenting what current law suggests they're going to receive uh, because they've, they've got this hidden, uh, hidden notion that you know, benefits may be cut. Maybe, maybe they will. But, you know, that's the discussion we ought to be having with people if we believe that's the case. So to sum up, what, what would be your basic answer to, is there a retirement crisis in America? I, I don't think there's a general retirement crisis. I think there are pockets of people who, who are on a trajectory that suggests they will be, be ill-prepared when they get to retirement. But I think for the vast majority of people who, who are contributing regularly to the retirement saving plan, they should be encouraged to continue that. But they ought not be told frightening stories that, you know, we're all on the road to perdition when it's simply not true. Um, I want to end by raising a larger issue. And you, you sort of touched on this in your book, The Predictable Surprise, goes into it in depth. And that's, in a sense, there is a retirement crisis, but it's it's that we have a bunch of people who, and these are my words, the government is made dependent on Social Security, 
And then we have a social security system that on our current trajectory won't be able to keep its current promises, at least not without increasing the already tremendous tax burdens it inflicts on working Americans. So my final question though is, what are these people like Elizabeth Warren pushing to expand social security thinking when they fight to make us more dependent on it and make it more expensive? Well, I think there's a there's a presumption that once everybody's uh, is dependent, then somehow uh, policymakers simply have to finance themselves, and that they're not going to uh, they're not going to stand up against the revolution that will arise if uh, if the benefits are, are being curtailed uh, in a situation where this is really people's lifeline, um, and you know. Get listen to the to the rhetoric. Everybody's standing in line to uh, increase taxes on high income individuals. You know, maybe maybe we will, uh, but at some juncture, you know, there's so many people standing in line that there's not enough high income people to even sustain all of these things. Uh, but there there is a real sense that if we if we get if we push push this whole thing right up to the ledge. Where it's about to uh, about to become underfinanced, and benefits are going to have to be reduced because current law does not allow Social Security to borrow. Uh, then politicians will simply have to increase the burden on, on workers at the time. Uh, I believe that would raise tremendous inequity problems. You know, there are there are people who who actually advocate that you know we shouldn't be talking about this today because if we talk about it today you know policymakers are going to be inclined to say well you know maybe we do need to make some adjustments on the revenue side but we also should be making some adjustments on the benefit side and and you know then you would have the potential for at least equitably distributing the burden of fixing what is acknowledged to be a, a significant problem but if we do push things right up to the ledge, uh, there's the possibility that uh, that we really do badly damage the next generation and their ability to maintain standards of living and, and to prosper. Uh, and I did write extensively about that in the latter chapters of, uh, of the predictable surprise. Well, one quick follow-up. One of the things that's often said though is look it, it's it's simple just a two percent increase in payroll taxes problem solved for 75 years well first first of all that two percent is now getting to be an old number uh it's uh, it's over three percent now and if we put it off the way many people want to until 2030 that that uh uh two or three percent becomes about five percent well, if you're if you uh, if you work for for forty years, a career for forty years, and we're taking an added five percent out of your earning over that forty years relative to what I paid into the system, that means that you're going to pay two additional years of your earnings for a Social Security benefit that's essentially going to be the equivalent of my. I'm sixty eight today. I'm not drawing benefit yet, but. Uh, you're going to be paying two more years of your earnings than I was willing to pay for for my benefits, uh, and you're going to get a benefit that's uh, actually a little less than mine. 
And that just, again, it seems to me to raise fundamental equity questions that we ought to be talking about. My guest today has been Sylvester Schieber. Syl, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. So I just want to reiterate a point that I think came through during the interview but needs to be stressed, which is that the purpose of pushing this idea that we face a retirement crisis is to push a political agenda. Now, that agenda on one level is to expand Social Security, to make the payments bigger, to make it, quote, more generous. But it's way worse than that because, as Syl pointed out, the there's a this is paired with an attack on private um, savings, on 401ks and private pensions. And part of that attack is that they actually wanted to deprive us of tax incentives to save privately. Ultimately, by making uh, Social Security payments greater and by reducing our private savings, their goal really is to make us dependent on government to make the elderly massively more dependent than they are today. This shouldn't really strike us as as too much of a surprise. I mean, their goal has always been to undermine self-reliance and independence. But what this really illustrates is the idea that, look, massive amounts of Americans will be fundamentally dependent on government in old age, which gives the people pushing this agenda, like Elizabeth Warren, immense amounts of power and help solidify the permanence of these programs. After all, if the vast majority of Americans don't have private savings, if most, if not all of their retirement comes from Social Security, well, then the program is there to stay and the people who control that program have immense amounts of power. The if that happens, then these programs will be impossible to unwind no matter how much damage they do. And that's why I say the people pushing for these programs, far from having the right to regard themselves as moral idealists, are evil. And I use that word deliberately. If you are trying to make millions and millions and millions of Americans dependent on the government, and you completely ignore the devastation this is going to uh, impose on young people who are going to have to foot a bill that nobody will be able to afford to pay, then you are engaging in destruction on such a massive scale with no excuse that, well, I just didn't see the consequences coming. And that that is the essence of what it means to be evil. On that down note, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit End the Debt Draft. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debt draft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.